0: Um, Our last panel, we have two speakers, um, Experiments and Visions, um, this this, um, session is titled, Um, and um, our two speakers are Tom Tom Quick and Tiffany Watt-Smith. So um, Tom, um, between 2007 and and 11, studied for his PhD on the history of nerve physiology in 19th century Britain at the um, Centre for the History of Medicine at UCL. Um, Since then, he's held a range of research positions including at an ongoing digital humanities um, project at the Department of Anatomy, Physiology and Genetics in the University of Oxford, and a spell at the University of Leeds, studying media and laboratory techniques. Um, he's currently engaged on a project at the Science Museum, that sounds uh, absolutely fascinating, that addresses the rehabilitation of individuals with spinal cord injuries during and after World War Two. And today he's going to talk to us about nervous integration and sensory simultaneity, cinema. Um, it's <laughs> a, <that's> a really <laughs> cruel <cool> title. Sorry. <laughs> 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 Some doing cinema in Britain. That's <laughs> <laughs> <18 years, laughs> <laughs> 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 um, And Tiffany um, is a lecturer in drama, theatre, and performance at Queen Mary University um, of London, University of London, and is also a research fellow at the Centre for the History of Emotions, working on a five-year Wellcome Trust project called Living with Feeling. Um, and she's also held a British Academy postdoc fellowship um, at Queen Mary's as well. Um, her wonderful book on flinching theatricality and scientific looking from Darwin to Shell Shop, was published in 2014 by OEP. Um, and she's just recently published another book uh, for a kind of wider, uh, non specialist audience called The Book of Human Emotions, um, which uh, you can pick up from the World of Trust, exactly. um, <laughs> Her new project explores history of ideas about compulsive imitation from the Victorian science of phonologies to current debates on mirror neurons, and today she's speaking to us about great pretenders, imitation and theatricality in the long 19th century. So, open to Tom.
1: Okay, before um, I start, I just want to say this is very much um, a tentative talk from my point of view, this is work that I've only really started to get interested in over the last sort of six to eight months, I'd say. So it's it's it's, a, it's an exploration of a few ideas rather than a set of conclusions that I want to sort of bring to you. So I very, very much welcome any comments, suggestions for how I can sort of um, contextualise some of the material that I want to present today in, in a little bit more thoroughly. But um, the work itself emerges from um, my... Uh, work on the the role of technologies in the the relation of mind with brain in the 19th century Um, but what I want to discuss today is a sense that only it actually came up in the last session at the very end um, but has generally not been addressed by certainly historians of psychology to any sort of explicit degree and that is the sense of time or memory Um, so, at le- since at least around the start of the 20th century, critical studies of scientific thinking have characterised it as centering on a particular and no-means-universal no conception of time. In 1907, Henry Bergson famously opposed his conception of duration to what he characterised as a cinematographic conception of temporal experience. Heidegger's being in time later sought to exemplify a philosophical mode which was not founded on a conception of experience given to us in a series of now points. Bergson Heidegger's publications have become points of reference for a wide range of studies, which have sought to cast doubt on the conception of time as uniline- unilinear, sequential series of isolatable events. What many of these kinds of studies hold in common is a particular object of critique, and that is of a scientific time in which individual moments are isolated and in some way observed. Recently, um, Lorraine Dasson and Peter Gallison have identified this concentration on isolatable individual moments with the emergence of what they characterise as mechanical objectivity. They argue that this temporal slicing that Bergson found so abhorrent was part of a broad move during the late 19th and early 20th centuries in which scientists came to appeal ever more to tools as guarantors of observational accuracy. At the start of the 20th century, according to this narrative, perception became technical, or scientific perception became technical. In this talk, I want to build on this insight to a certain extent, but I also want to question Daston and Galison's Gall- assumption that machine, the machines that became so prominent in late 19th century science with, with, were associated with a single, uncontested un- mode of investigation. I do agree that there was was a turn to technology as a guarantor of observational accuracy um, amongst physiological scientists at the end of the 19th century. But I also want to suggest that the association between technology-dependent modes of observing and the slicing of time into discrete individually analysable moments was in no way inevitable or indeed potentially even prevalent at the turn of the 20th century. What I want to suggest is that even before Bergson published his his famous critique, a very different conception of temporal experience was already being brought into being. This conception, I want to suggest, was just as dependent on the emergence of technological modes of perception as temporal slicing, but departed from it in significant ways. Further, I want to argue that this alternative mode was fully compatible with, and may have emerged from, the meeting of physiological science. And cinematographic technologies that Bergson identified with the attempt to capture time in a series of moments. From the start of the 20th century, I would suggest, physiologists and psychologists began to position simultaneity as fundamental to experience. In the place of Bergson's vision centred cinematographic slicing of time into moments, these figures posited a multi sensory mode in which experience was constructed by the impact of the environment on several different senses at once. Far from depending on the possibility of visual or mechanical recording, however, the appeal to simultaneity can be associated with technological efforts to stimulate the human body. By applying electricity to the skin, ringing tuning forks in the ears of their experimental subjects, projecting light onto their retinas in highly particular ways, and sometimes all of these things at once... Physiologists hope to solve a long-standing problem regarding the relation between sense organs, nerves, and the mind. So, if we just have the first image, um, first slide, sorry. Um, At the end of autumn 1898, a group of laboratory scientists at what was then University College Liverpool moved into a brand new state-of-the-art building. This was the Thompson-Yates laboratory. It cost £30,000 to build, it was housed in the School of Physiology and Pathology and filled with the latest scientific equipment. Two quotes from a Nature article heralding the opening of the facilities highlight the volume and range of technologies required for a teaching laboratory at this time. The lab contains a large room for physiological, uh, physical physiology enabling a class of more than 30 to carry out exercises on muscle and nerve at one time. Each student being placed uh, being provided with an electric light, water, gas, electric wire for supply of current, induction coil, electric battery, recording drum um, and so on and so forth. But also the lecture theatre is very completely fitted for lantern illustrations, including the projection microscope, the chromoscope, the animatograph, the episcope, the sky octagon, and also very perfect arrangements for the projection of the spectrum. The nature writer goes on to quote the doyenne of physiology in Britain at this time, Michael Foster, um, as commenting on the opening of the laboratories, that the, the opening of laboratories produced two physiological effects. They took one's breath away and they made one's mouth water. And I think this final quote sums up uh, the sense in which university laboratories were not only sort of brand new quasi-futuristic institutions for 19th century Britons, but they also seemed filled with intellectual potential. The scientists of the late 19th century rushed to design and or obtain the latest research tools. In the case of physiology, this primarily meant searching for and constructing devices and substances for the stimulation, measurement and recording of living bodies. Today, I want to emphasise that physiology in early 20th century Britain was not only produced for the development of classic physiological technologies such as the myograph, or similar inscription devices. So these are sort of very well studied by people like Robert Brain and Henning Schwykden. But they are also, to a great extent, defined by the media tools used by professors to convey their findings to students. By considering the overlap between the design tools of scientific research and tools of communication, I want to consider the ways in which communication technologies interacted with processes of knowledge production at the end of the 19th century. And I will take only one example, that of the animatograph of the nature quote just mentioned. This device was more widely known as a theatrograph, and was one of the first commercial film projectors designed by Robert Paul in 1896. The next image, please. So in scenes that must have given a sort of sense of immediacy to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds with its sort of invasion by tri-legged uh, recording and projection devices, um, Britain was genuinely sort of engulfed in these, um, re- sorry, in, in cinematographic tools at the end of the 19th century. In Liverpool, the Lumiere brothers' representative, Alexandra Louis Promio visited and produced films of the Central Station, as well as one of the first long pan shots in film history of the docks. Next, There were further visits from the London-based Warwick Trading Company from 1899. This company filmed scenes of arrival and disembarkation of the oceanic liners and the electric trains of the new Liverpool Overhead Railway. The Liverpool Mercury, the local newspapers filled with stories of cinematographic disasters such as fires, and in one case, an extended litigation case involving either a technically incompetent theatre owner or a defective projecting device, I've not been able to work out which. There are also adverts for the projections organised by, for example, the Liverpool Food and Betterment Association. But the grandest centre of entertainment, of entertainment in the city at this time, the new Brighton power, um, Tower, actually housed a permanent projection pit, its Pleasure Gardens. Despite all this projection spectatorship, however, it was not the images that were produced by cinematographs that most fascinated the scientists of the Thomson Yeats lab. Instead, these experimental physiologists were most excited by the possibilities that cinematographic technology afforded for the projection of light. It's now well known that development of devices for creating imagery have been intertwined with the design of laboratory equipment since the early 19th century. But it was in Liverpool that cinematographic technology was first reintegrated into the broad-ranging tools of the physiology laboratory. And the way it was done so, in a set of experiments conducted by the neuroscientist Charles, Charles Scott Sherrington, almost completely ignored the image- image-producing potential. Of uh, next image, Before his appointment as Holt Professor of Physiology at Liverpool in eighteen ninety five, um, Sherrington attended Cambridge, where he'd been taught by Foster as well as Walter Gaskell, travelled in Spain and uh, particularly visited some of the leading laboratories in Germany at this time, and later worked at the Brown Institute, which were the physiological laboratories of the University of London. During his time at Liverpool, Sherrington became inspired by the cinematographic tools that surrounded him. But he understood the potential of cinematographic technologies differently from most of his scientific peers. They were, he saw them not as a means of capturing nature in a series of discrete moments, but rather as a device for stimulation of the human eye. Between 1897 and 1906, he conducted a series of experiments using a projector of his own design. This casts not imagery, but a single narrow flashing beam of light onto the retina of each eye. I could have the next image, next slide. The device was effectively a lamp um, that shone on a series of small holes. These holes were blocked off intermittently by a rapidly rotating screen. This created a series of rapid flashes that could be varied for each eye. For example, each eye might be flashed simultaneously, or the flashes might be alternate, first stimulating one retina and then the other in quick succession. When the flashes were fast enough, they were blurred to create the impression of constant beams of light in a phenomenon known as the flicker fusion phenomenon. It's especially notable that Sherrington went to great lengths to ensure that these stimulating effects that he produced with this device affected the retina alone. He created a very thin beam that he believed ensured that that it impacted on only a single retinal point. There was no distortion by the bend of the arm. Subjects were required to grip a bar with their teeth to ensure that their heads remained absolutely still. It's perhaps not coincidental that Sherrington worked with horses at the Bryant Browns. <laughs> <laughs> what then was Sherrington to achieve with this setup? Well, since the middle of the 19th century, a growing interest in the relation between muscle and nerve from the British side had grown up amongst British physiologists. This has complicated established notions of the nature of perception. Eighteenth-century moral philosophers had conceived of the mind as made up of associations between impressions which were assimilated via the classical five senses. Over the nineteenth century, this model came to be complicated by increasing prominence according to a sixth muscular sense. This focused not on external nature, but on the internal position of the body, the position of the muscles. The study of kinesthesia helped strengthen this physiological support for long-standing the body could sense and react instinctively or unconsciously to stimuli without the intervention of the conscious mind. So, I don't think most people are aware of the next uh, slide which is Alexander Bain's quote, I've thought proper to assign to movement, and the feelings of movement a position preceding the senses uh, the, the sensations of the senses. In Germany, where the classic five senses did remain more prominent, Ewald Herring had challenged the the grandfather of laboratory physiology, Hermann von Helmholtz, on the issue of unconscious sensation. Herring had argued that vision sensations were not produced in the brain, as Helmholtz and the moral philosophers claimed, but in the eyes themselves. In a long series of experiments, the two physiologists and their supporters had argued back and forth. One result of this had been the establishment of two very different positions, One was that the combination of the rational images produced in each eye happened in the brain, i.e. that visual perception was a contemplative, rational activity. It was the responsibility of the nerves alone. Secondly, the second vision was that eyes and their associated muscles actually participated in the perception of images themselves. Sensors sent to the brain via the nerves were joined together, but vision was an active, instinctual activity in which the muscles were intimately involved. So by stimulating each eye independently, first simultaneously and then alternately, and comparing the results, Sherrington was trying to discover not simply the nature of visual experience, but the respective role of eyes, muscles and nerves in visual perception. His conclusions and those of his contemporaries would have profound theories, uh, profound implications for theories of perception. In The Integrative Action of the <coughs> Nervous System, which was published in 1906, Sherrington embedded his LAMP studies in a broader narrative regarding the action of nerves in sensation. Nerves, Sherrington ar- argued, were carriers of, carriers of specific reflex arcs that passed through the bodily system as a whole. For example, a particular point on the skin, if a particular point on the skin was stimulated, it would set a reaction through all the nerves connected with that point. If the stimulus was strong enough, this reaction would reach the brain, where it would manifest itself as conscious feeling or sensation. Crucially, however, as nerves approached the brain, which Sherrington presumed to be the organ of consciousness, the paths that were available to each reflex arc got narrower and narrower. At the base of the brain, um, the base of the brain constituted a kind of funnel through which all reflex arcs sought to pass through into consciousness. When multiple nerves sought to pass through the same path, the arc with the strongest impulse would tend to win out; the losing reaction being blocked or inhibited. So, next quote, please. Oh, so this is um, this is a, an example of some of the um, illusion-creating devices that came out of the debate between Helmholtz and Herring. So, rather than stimulate each eye independently, this by rotating this disc, you would. Um, find the speed that you had to rotate at, when this starts to go grey, you're creating the illusion, instead of each eye independently being stimulated. But if next, yeah. So, let me just go back a bit, sorry. So when multiple nerves sort to pass through the same path according to Sherrington, the arc with the strongest impulse would tend to win out, the losing reaction being blocked or inhibited. So when two receptors stimulated simultaneously, each of the receptors tending to evoke reflex action for its end effect employs the same final common path but employs it in a very different way from the other. One reflex appears without the other. The result of this is reflex or that, that reflex, but not the two together. Though some paths are added together, others are antagonistic. So it may choose sources which are harmonious. On the other hand, Instead of adding factors that tend to combine in the production of a particular reflex, we make excite simultaneously with other sources, a source whose reaction is incompatible with theirs. Then struggle and rivalry ensue, and the result may be the inhibition of that particular reflex, and the appearance of some other. Sherrington understood conscious sensation as the sum total of those reflexes that were able to compete successfully for access to the brain. The implication of this was that our consciousness um, was that our consciousness of one or another kind of, sen- excuse me, sensation could be used to infer the presence or absence of connections between our senses and our brain. But more fundamentally, this conclusion was accompanied by a research program in which the simultaneous stimulation of different nerves began to play a key role. So the next quote is that the receptive points and organs which, under stimulation, initiate reflex movements. Also, initiate in the intact animal with unmutilated brain sensations. The cigar taken from its box may be simultaneously sensed through the eye and hand and nose and ear. The object experimentally regarded as a single object excites a neural reaction that has its starting points in many spatially and qualitatively, qualitatively distinct receptive points, each point the commencement of separate nervous acts. In his LAMP experiment, Sherrington separated out the individual eyes from each other. It was only by stimulating each eye individually that the relationship between them could be revealed. His conclusion, which remains in dispute to this day, was that if the eyes were stimulated simultaneously, they were able to convey a higher rate of flashing to the cerebral hemispheres than if they were stimulated alternately. So, flashing both eyes at once is... um, the eyes become more receptive than if you flash them at the same rate of time, but alternately. So similar. Um, the next quote, please. Similar phases of flickering illumination, if timed to fall coincidentally on the conjugate retinal areas, do very slightly reinforce each other in sensation. But if timed exactly alternately, do very slightly mutually reduce. But the broad outcome of the observations is that there is hardly any trace of such interference. So he's trying to make a very subtle point, from his own point of view, about the difference between um, combined action of senses and alternate action of senses on the nervous system. Subjects were more discerning when each retinal point was presented with a stimulating beam of light at the same time. This showed, he suggested, that the experience of sensation could not be the responsibility of the eyes and their associated muscles alone. Because perception was ever so slightly less sensitive when the eyes were stimulated alternately, it seemed to show him that the nerves of each eye must only converge at a point very close to, if not within, the brain itself. This, he argued, implied that vision was dependent on a complex nervous op- apparatus. So the next quote is that the cer- re- retinal cerebral apparatus may be regarded as a structure of linked branching nerve at a system which expands uh, and may be figured as a tree with its stem at the retina and arborisation spreading into the brain, its ramifications penetrating a vast cerebral field into which all the different sensory uh, nerves coming from sensors would enter. The brain did not bring the images produced in each eye together to create a rational whole, but was nevertheless very close to where the image was created. Finally, Sherrington re emphasised that his conclusions were relevant to all sensation, not only vision. So the next quote is that a broad practical inference, which, which study of the nervous system in regard to motor reactions, is, is that towards the solution of motor taxis, help is obtainable by appeal to characters' evidence and sensual reaction. The likeness of nervous reactions expressed by muscular and other effector organs to reactions whose evidence is sensual is close and fundamental enough. So he's trying to draw that analogy. Um, to make each of the two classes of phenomena of use to student of the other. Imagery, like all other senses, uh, sensations, became simultaneously muscular and nervous in Sherrington's scheme. But the actual experience of imagery was associated closely with the brain itself. It was the fact that impressions occurred either simultaneously or divergently that produced experience, not the sensorially autonomous action of association. Thus it wasn't the anatomical conversion of of nerves but the temporal conversion, the simultaneity of sensations that produced the most powerful physiological effects. So the next quote is that pure conjunction is time without necessarily cerebral conjunction in space lies at the root of the solution of the problem of unity in mind. Foster's experience of having had his breath taken away and his mouth-watering at the Thompson-Yates laboratories, was the result of his exposure to many sensations at once, rather than any rational association of his, of laboratories, with learning. The year after Sherrington published his Integrative Action, Bergson published Creative Evolution, in which he famously characterised and critiqued scientific time as a cinematographic succession of images. This critique has often been interpreted as a philosophical reaction against scientific culture. But we can begin to see, I think, that at the early 20th century we see a proliferation of ideas about the temporal nature of experience. In assimilating cinematographic technologies into, their research, into the research environment, Sherrington and his associates participated in the construction a conception of temporal experience that privileged simultane, simultaneity over succession. Others sought to suspend, expand on this conclusion. Henry Head used a wide variety of simultaneous stimuli in his investigation of the relations between nerve pathology and conscious experience. In his 1909 Introduction to Social Psychology, William McDougall drew explicitly on Schoenmetz's studies to argue that complex emotional states were produced through the simultaneous excitement of any, numbers, any of a small number of simpler, supposedly more fundamental, instinctual dispositions. We read yesterday Harry Wold's suggestion that movement and muscles are important for hearing hearing perception. Simultaneous stimulation appears to have become a significant mode of physiological and psychological investigation during the early decades of the 20th century. More broadly, the association of the experience of sensation with the operation of the integrating nervous system rather than individual sense organs and nerves was accompanied by an in- intense interest in the interrelation between the senses. This study was facilitated by the adaptation and integration of tools designed to stimulate senses such as cinematographic uh, technologies. So I think I'll leave it there. Thank you.
2: But I'm just using this photo uh, at the beginning, just as an illustration. And so in the last uh, 30 years, our compulsion to imitate each other's facial expressions and gestures to catch lo- yawns and all lean in the same direction has become a hot topic in uh, the biomedical sciences. And as I'm sure you all know, uh, in the early uh, 1990s, researchers in Italy accidentally discovered what they dubbed a mirror neural system at work in the brains of the monkeys. So, when a monkey, I find this very hard to explain for some reason, but when a monkey sees another monkey eating a banana, the same uh, network of neurons is seen to fire in the frame of the first monkey as if he was eating the banana himself. Um, So, since these early experiments, um, mirror neurons have emerged as a key area of research um, uh, with looking at humans, although, as I understand it, no sort of concrete um, evidence that mirror neurons actually do exist in humans as yet exists. Um, but there have been an awful lot of claims made for mirror neurons, um, uh, and in the last sort of couple of years, actually, we started getting a bit of a backlash. So many people are saying, you know, these, the claim of mirror neurons has been very overhyped. and people have analysed the use of mirror neurons in more popular media and noticed that it's been used as an explanatory tool for everything from um, what happens when you catch a yawn from your dog, which I haven't even done, to what you can do to get your boyfriend to be a bit more thoughtful. So this is mirror neurons being sort of used in a very sort of wide and uncritical uh, way and if you're interested in more on this then uh, Greg Hickcock has a nice book called The Myth of Mirror Neurons. Um, So at the same time, uh, in um, the humanities, um, mirror neurons have also proved rather suggestive, uh, from philosophy to law, from anthropology to literary performance studies. Again, uh, looking back at this work, we might wonder uh, whether we were too easily uh, infused by the idea of mirror neurons uh, and embraced them too quickly. Um, Even though at the same time, they did raise really interesting and important questions about agency. authenticity and resilience. Um, But there was this flurry of interest in imitation, um, and I want to look back uh, to what I think is a very similar sort of flurry of excitement and interest about the idea of a human copying machine uh, in the 1890s. Um, So in fact, um, as I'm sure we all know, philosophers, psychologists, um, neurologists, interested in the idea of imitation through the 19th century. But certainly, philosophers are writing about imitation from at least the mid-18th century, when moral philosophers Adam Smith and David Hume talk about our compulsion to, to imitate one another, particularly to wince when someone else is about to be hurt, as evidence of a, a kind of innate sympathy. Um, in the late 1890s, uh, an excitement about human mirroring reemerges in the context of an emphasis on a physiological account of human behaviour and, uh, and really takes hold. So it was vigorously debated um, by child psychologists and by psychiatrists working in asylum. Uh, it was debated by theorists of emotion, um, those interested in crowd psychology, uh, and particularly in the field of aesthetics. Um, but deep within all of this debate lay a troublesome presence, and that presence was theatre, which of course is the most obvious cultural manifestation of our urge to copy. Um, So my purpose today is to trace the reciprocal, sometimes uncomfortable, perhaps rather marginal, perhaps not hugely significant initially, but I think perhaps rich and illuminating role of theatrical techniques and problems in psychological experiments, in scientific publications, and in fact literary writing about unconscious mimicry in the 1890s. Um, The paper kind of will unfold in four parts... So the first part would we'll just do a very kind of quick laying out of some of the key areas in which imitation, so a sort of in- involuntary compulsion to copy one another, was debated in the 19th century. Um, the second part I want to do a bit more sort of detailed thinking about how theatrical techniques and theatrical spaces became important for psychologists trying to understand how imitation worked and why we did it. And the third uh, part, in the third part I want to do some close reading of a particular text, and that is James Sully's Studies of Childhood, which was published in 1896. And in the final section I'll briefly talk about H.G. Wells's uh, brilliant short story, The Sad Tale of the Dramatic Critic, uh, which was published in 1897, um, to think about how this relationship between theatre and science plays out in, in literary context too. Um, but before I launch in... Um, and before I get totally confused as to which page I'm <laughs> about, uh, so, I want to just talk a little bit about the critical context for this project. So it's been about uh, 25 years since um, uh, philosophers and historians of science started using the word performance or performativity um, to think about the agency and interactivity of machines and bodies in the production of scientific knowledge. Of course I'm thinking about the work of Schaefer and Schaefer, Latour, Pries, and Puring, for our, so. so the performative turn in science studies points up a new way of thinking about scientific knowledge um, not as something which represents the world but something which um, is created and produced by networks of embodied activities uh, and these embodied activities can include things like the machines that we've just been hearing about but can also include all kinds of other techniques and performances and acts in the laboratory and beyond it. Now, to me, as as a scholar of um, theatre and performance, it's very interesting that the word performance and the paradigm of performativity gets chosen, gets used instead of the word theatre and theatricality. And so, of course, rational knowledge and theatre have a very, very bad history together from Plato onwards. um, As one of uh, my colleagues at Queen Mary, Nick Ryder, has written, I'm going to paraphrase a bit, but... Uh, performance has a sort of rather innocent ring about it, but theatre is a very guilty-sounding sort of word. It's guilty because of its pretense and all of its failures, its embarrassments, its slippages, and so on. And so in my work, uh, I've been really interested in how this kind of guilty, uh, problematic theatricality um, is part of these performative um, networks which produce scientific knowledge. Um, Now, when we turn to the 19th century, there's a a rich body of work by historians and literary scholars. I'm thinking about people like Jay Goodall and Ewan Morris and Bernie Lightman, who have explored the relationship between theatrical spectacles uh, and mid-Victorian science. Um, And this is a very important uh, area for me. Um, When we get to the late 19th century, Uh, And and we've just been hearing about this, you know, with the, the, you know, introduction of laboratories and this kind of more professionalised scientific context for the sciences of mind, uh, for the study of mind, and we get this new sort of urge for psychology to to form itself and portray itself as a rational, empirical and very modern uh, discipline. And and in this context, we might expect theatre to kind of uh, disappear and vanish into the background, um, but, uh, of course, as historians of, of this period of, of scientific psychology have explored, it remains a very messy and contested field. I'm thinking about people like Jenny Bourne-Taylor, um, who has written about the ways in which experts and amateur knowledge, scientific and artistic knowledge, um, uh, knowledge created in the laboratory and knowledge created outside it, all kind of come together to, to pr- produce... Uh, what the psychologists themselves were talking about is a very modern, um, rational discipline, where it actually it was kind of much more messy and manifold. Um, and I think this kind of ties into the theme uh, of thought that, that um, Roger mentioned initially, which is that we, we need to talk about psychologies and we need to talk about the different ways in which different disciplines constitute psychology and how psychology both thinks of itself and how we think of that psychology at this time, um, obviously you're talking about literature constituting psychology, I'm really interested in how theatre helps constitute it too um, Carolyn could we have the first slide this is a very peculiar experience isn't it um, uh, ok very briefly really the 19th century story of our compulsion to imitate one another begins uh, with phrenology and its organ of imitation um, so uh, phrenologists believe that you know deep in the brain there was a particular command centre for the for the urge to imitate, um, and, and amongst those who had enlarged organs of imitation, um, there there was a sort of it was a rather sort of ambiguous kind of quality. So, uh, on the one hand, uh, it would make you rather sort of witty and merry, apparently. Um, So, if you had a shriveled organ of imitation, then you were rather sort of serious and perhaps not very good fun. But on the other side of the coin, it could be a rather dangerous thing. So, uh, Gaul, one of the founders of phrenology, went to visit uh, a prison in Berlin, and there he met a thief. And on inspecting his head, Gaul announced, if this man had ever been near a theatre, he would have in all probability turned actor. And the prisoner, astonished at the accuracy of this prediction, said that his crime was indeed having personated a police officer to extort money. So there is this fear that if you are good at imitating, then you may well um, uh, be, be busy colluding um, uh, and deceiving people in all kinds of ways. Um, so here we have a sort of initial, you know, even from these sort of early moments of, of imitation in the 19th century, theatre's there, but it's being something which is problematic. In 1859, so skipping forward, in a review of uh, Bates' journal from his Butterfly Hunting in the Amazon, Charles Darwin noted the frustrations of uh, collecting insects uh, who continually shifted their appearance uh, to sort of evade predators. He said, uh, Why, to the perplexity of naturalists, has nature condescended to the tricks of the stage? Darwin also noticed that many of the human inhabitants of Tierra del Fuego were excellent mimics. His journal of researches describes a, a kind of series of ad hoc experiments that he, he and his crew may, uh, members made with with what he calls the savages. Uh, so, quote: "As often as we coughed or yawned or made some odd motion, they immediately imitated us." And he continues that. Um, one of the crew members was so sort of taken with this that he starts pulling all of these terrible faces and grimacing and so on and and indeed the the people on the shore uh, imitate and this causes great sort of delight Um, I'm really interested in this moment because you see and Darwin describes two very different sorts of Performance. You know, of course, you have the performance of these of the savages on the, on the shore, and Darwin compares them to, to actors. He says, in their ceremonial dress, they look like devils on the stage. So he talks about them as actors. But of course, you know, it's, it's Darwin and the, and the crewmates who are doing the performing. They're putting the faces in order to provoke the reaction of the people on the shore. So, uh, so you've got two different kinds of acting going on there. But what you do have is acting going on in the process of trying to c- collect. Um, or create scientific knowledge about imitation. Uh, In Britain, we have William Carpenter and Alexander Bain becoming interested in involuntary imitation, uh, finding it primarily um, amongst children, amongst, uh, quote, the lower races, amongst lunatics and women. Uh, We have Carpenter and uh, Faraday in his experiments on table turning in the 50s, um, talking about compulsive imitation as a species of Idiomotor activity, so you have an idea uh, uh, about a movement because you've seen it uh, or you've thought about it, uh, and then you are immediately impelled to to enact it. Um, By the 1890s, the question of how this idiomotor activity worked uh, and whether it was an inherent impulse uh, or something that was learned, uh, whether it was universal, whether it was something pathological, how it was connected with um, inhibition. Uh, How it was connected uh, to evolution and degeneration, uh, whether it was dangerous, whether it was useful, whether it was both, uh, was was debated in in many fields. Next slide. Oh, next slide. There we go. So, uh, so we talked yesterday about how certain (coughs) metaphors uh, get passed around Victorian science writing. uh, And in the writing about imitation. The defining metaphor is, uh, or the defining example, I should say, is is of an audience watching a tightrope walker. So, Rebo, William James, Joan Sully, William Prayer, they all talk about a crowd of people gazing up at at a rope walker. And as the rope walker moves across the the rope, uh, then their bodies sway back to front, then the crowd watching... Uh, also experiences their bodies moving back and forwards. I've just put the person falling from the rope as just something to entertain you. Uh, that story doesn't <laughs> doesn't come into any of the any of it. Um, So uh, so we have tightrope walkers, um, but, but these audiences of um, uh, the tightrope and other circus spectacles were were thought to be um, to give kind of evidence of a shared organic sympathy. Um, They didn't know whether it was an instinctive thing, whether it was a learned thing. Um, Salomon Stricker maintained that imitation was something that you were born with, uh, but most uh, thought that it appeared in the baby's fourth month of life. But as the French uh, psychologist Rebo put it in in 1897, the impulse to imitate gropes its way. Uh, It is tentative. It fails again after successes. So the idea is that humans themselves aren't only malleable, but the, the impulse mutates too, its potency rising and falling and ebbing and flowing through an individual's life. So, um, broadly speaking, unconscious imitation uh, was explored in four main areas in the 1890s. Uh, First in developmental, or child psychology, where the impulse to imitate was used to explain how infants acquired language, uh, where they got their moral sense from, uh, how they socialised. Uh, That's in uh, 1896. James Sully called imitation the raw material of morality. And he also linked it to imagination and empathy and play. Uh, One of the second main areas where imitation was talked about was in the asylum, where compulsive imitation uh, was a pathological symptom for those suffering diseases of the nervous uh, system. So one patient uh, described by the German uh, physician's I never really know how to say this, Meige, Meige, any German speakers, Meige, Meige, M-E-I-G-E. Meige. Meige, Meige, thank you, Meige and Findle, I'm thinking. Um, uh, this was a patient who was treated by Tourette's. Um, now this patient was in, impelled to imitate and absorb all the kind of curious behaviours and tics that he witnessed in doctors and patients. And he developed what what the authors called a a veritable debauchery of absurd gesticulations, a wild muscular carnival. So there we go. Um, Ah. The uh, unconscious compulsion to imitate gestures and facial expressions were also uh, discussed in the context of aesthetic debates in the 1890s. And some of the readings yesterday and some of what we talked about today has touched on that. I mean, we haven't unfortunately heard Carolyn's uh, brilliant work on Vernon Lee today, but of course that would be a really great example uh, of someone talking about how uh, a, a sort of involuntary imitation of, a, of, a, of, a, of an art object um, produces a sensation that it is either beautiful or ugly, quite famously in, in, in her work, in her experiments with kit Thomson, Thompson. Um, actually, Lee talks about this inner mimicry as or, einfühlung, um, or later empathy, And she uses, I think I'm right, in saying the verb, to mine, to describe this particular response. Uh, Finally, uh, imitation uh, was thought to explain the development of social customs. Um, One of the most amusing examples of this, wrote James Sully, is the elevated handshake lately in Vogue. I've tried to imagine what this elevated handshake might might be, but I suppose it must be something like that. Um, Apparently, this gesture, according to Sully, reach the eyes of the vulgar by way of the theatre. So um, anyone uh, who was shot in among you in that last paragraph will have noticed that there is a sort of accretion of um, images, theatrical images. Um, so we have the audiences at the circus who wobble along with the tightrope walker. We have the wild muscular carnival of the patient. We have the empathetic mime of those who appreciate art. Now, for Sully, we have the theatre as one of those terrible places where you might catch ludicrous fashionable gestures. Um, uh, So, uh, why is this theatrical language there? Where does it come from? Uh, What is it making possible? Um, So, I'm I'm going to turn to the first question uh, first. So, where does this language uh, come from? Uh, Okay, so there was uh, so I I mentioned briefly that Victorian late Victorian psychology remained a sort of messy field uh, where amateur and professional approaches overlapped, and in the study of imitation, theatre was a key resource. So I talked about the famous crowd around the tightrope walker, um, those giggling at the stupidity of clowns were also of interest to psychological investigators. Uh, for Sully, laughter was the most contagious of emotions and, quote, a gathering of yokels laughing at a clown tends, through the mimicry of laughter, to become a coherent group. Um, he also talks, uh, and others too, about impromptu audiences um, gathered, for example, around billiards tables in pubs um, where the spectators move their arms when a shot is taken uh, in order to somehow sort of will the ball into the pocket with their own bodies. Uh, The German philosopher and psychologist Salomon Stricker went one step further, so he's not just alluding to theatrical spaces, but he sort of conducts self-experiments in them. He goes to the circus in the early 1890s. Um, Now, it should be said that paying attention to your own bodily sensations is a highly codified practice in late 19th century psychophysiological laboratories, and there's a lot of training to do it. Um, But here's an example of it happening outside the laboratory. Um, quote I went to the theatre to see the gymnasts wrote Stricker and first watched one using a screenboard at the moment he leaped from it I had the distinct sensation in my chest and the feeling too of motion in the muscles of my eyes and so <laughs> we're talking about this wonderful sort of you know u- using these um, uh, the Sherrington experiments on, on the eyes this very sort of clear laboratory based experience. but here's someone going to the circus and trying to sort of create the same kind of knowledge, trying to have the same kind of insights about the arts there. So Lurtz and Stryker observed audiences, other psychological investigators turned themselves into actors. So remember Darwin performing on the boat. Uh, In 1893, James Sully published his appeal in the journal Mind um, for parents and teachers to supply him with information about their children. Um, Many of the letters describe children imitating the uh, passionate performances of their parents. So a child of nine and a half months wept violently when his mother or father pretended to cry. We have a, a performance. Um, another child poured at his father's leg like a dog when the father feigned grief. Um, Sully so writes, and these are his own words, he writes the experiment was repeated and always with the like result. So the experiment was repeated. So this performance by a in a sitting room of weeping is by Sully described as an experiment. A his self observation the, at the theatre was elevated to the state of, of a formal experiment, so too were the theatrics of weeping parents who glanced like bad actors uh, from between their fingers to observe the effects of their histrionics upon their tiny experimental subjects. Um, I've, I've done that thing where. <laughs> <laughs> I've slightly uh, got... Uh, uh, run out of time. Um, and I've got about five minutes left, and I just want to make sure I use it in the right way. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to do what I was going to talk about Sully's text in detail, except for to, to briefly say that where Sully talks... Of, where Sully alludes to theatre and talks about theatre in Studies of Childhood, which he does quite a lot... Um, it's often in a very confused and rather muddled sort of way. So, for example, he'll make a claim about um, children acting, and then in a footnote, he'll sort of question it and perhaps say, no, I'm not sure if that's right. Or he'll make a claim about... So, one of my favourite moments is he'll make a claim about how actors, uh, when they perform an emotion, feel a sort of resonance of that emotion themselves. And this is a familiar theory from the James Lang theory... And then in a the footnote, he says, oh, actually, I'm not quite sure whether that's true. You know, what actors are like. They're very good at imagining things. Maybe they're just imagining it. So, so actors and theatre sort of have this really unsettled uh, presence in the text. Um, not entirely reliable. He seems rather confused about it, too. Um, and uh, the reason why I bring that up is because, I, to my mind, theatre... You know, is, is very important as an experimental resource for um, studies of, of, of imitation at this time. But also, in, in the psychological writing, it, see, it seems to sort of act as a kind of repository for all the anxieties that can come up around the problem of imitation. So, of course, imitation produces this um, unsettled relationship with yourself and with one another because you don't know, are people pretending, are, are your experiences authentic, and so on. Uh, so I think that the, that the appearance of um, theatrical metaphors and language in, in Sully's work and other psychological work at this time um, sort of alerts us to these kind of broader philosophical implications of that, of that problem. So I'm going to draw to a close now, um, but could I have the final slide, please? And uh, in the final part of the talk, I, just, oh, I want to talk briefly uh, um, about how this confluence of mimicry and theatrical problems emerged in the literary writing of this time. And I want to talk briefly about a short story by H. G. Wells called The Sad uh, Story of a Dramatic Critic. And this was published in 1897. So if queasy if a, the queasy theatrical implications of, of imitation bubble under the surface of Sully's writing, in H. G. Wells's story they become very clearly and they come very clearly into So Wells' story tells of a young journalist, uh, Egbert Cummins, who is a rather nice and retiring uh, type. And one day, quite out of the blue, his boss uh, invites him into the office and appoints him the newspaper's dramatic critic. And he is appalled, because he's never set foot inside a theatre in his life on the advice of his now deceased aunt Charlotte, who knows that theatres are a place of moral uh, disrepute and confusion. But he is a man of yielding disposition, and so he agrees. And he uh, makes his first trip to the theater that night, and it is not a success. He, had uh, the phenomenal unnaturalness of the acting, its weird mouthings and melodious snortings and lip gnawings, turns Cummins pale, pale with indignation. That night, he dreams of actors smiling bitterly, laughing despairingly, falling hopelessly, dying idiotically. <laughs> The following morning, standing in front of the bathroom mirror, Cummins notices himself performing a most peculiar gesture. He gleams up his left arm and clutches his diaphragm with his right one. He disregards it and sets off to the theatre that night, but before long his whole demeanour begins to change. He catches himself bowing ineffably when he meets his fiancée, who uh, dumps him later. Um, At work he does uh, nervous business uh, with his fingers on his teeth, And when he's asked a difficult question, he clasps his hand to his brow. Uh, Gradually, he begins to see what has happened. The acting I saw was too much for my delicately strung nervous system. I have always, I know, been too amenable to the suggestions of my circumstances. Night after night, of concentrated attention to the conventional attitudes and intonation of the English stage was gradually affecting my speech and carriage. I was giving way to the infection of sympathetic imitation. So like Sully's young Victorian fashionistas and their absurd handshake, it's in the theatre that Cummins picks up this posturing. And after all, as Cummins aunt and as James Sully knew, theatres are places where identities are blurred and the dangerous spectre of insincerity and misapprehension is raised. They are places where audience members get lost in the confusions between what is real and what is just pretending. Eventually, the infectious disease of imitation entombs Cummins and plates over his private individuality with a theatrical veneer. He turns from a stammering, awkward thing into a creature of flamboyant emotions. And like one of the butterflies uh, that Darwin wrote about uh, and a perplexed naturalist tried to study, Cummins becomes a creature of gorgeous colouring, but also a creature of fixity. Paradoxically, it's through this malleability of his body Um, this transformation wrought through theatre, that Cummins' character is given a kind of relief. He becomes visible and solid on the outside, um, his body conforming to the environment. But like an actor, outside and inside do not straightforwardly join up. He writes, I grinned and capered and scowled and posed, he said, and knew with what voiceless agony that I did it all the time. So, of course, Wells' story fits into a strain of fantasietal literature which trades in split selves, dump doubles, mimics, interlopers, so like Dracula, Dorian Gray, Jekyll and Hyde, all written in the 1890s. But each of these tales is also read, as we know, in, in, in the context of wider ideas in neurology and psychology, in which selves are unhitched from their moorings. In Wells' tale, it is a theatre which affects these dangerous transformations, uh, and in the writing of James Sully, theatre becomes a repository for all that is in unsettled and all that did unsettle uh, late Victorians about the notion that their emotions and their sensations and their behaviour might not be entirely their own. Thanks very much.